into material world, where we check out what's happening with all the things you eat, drink, smoke, wear, otherwise buy, and why you should care. We're your hosts. I'm Lindsay Rupp. I'm a reporter with Bloomberg News. I write about retail. And I'm Jenny Kaplan. I'm also a reporter with Bloomberg News, and I write about the beverage, tobacco, and cannabis industries. This week, we want to focus on a phenomenon that's shaken up the food and beverage industries. The past decade or so, the craft revolution has really taken hold. And I'm not talking about craft with a capital K that makes your favorite mac and cheese. No, we're going to be talking about the hard-to-define movement that's been sweeping the nation and, and kind of the world for the last 10 or 20 years, spanning artisanal popcorn, heirloom butter, small-batch ice cream. I mean, everybody knows about craft beer at this point, but this term goes well beyond the beer industry. Yeah, the Brewers Association has a specific definition for what they call craft beer. But generally, the word's taken on a broader meaning. It's come to mean any company or product that's perceived to have a certain kind of authenticity. A craft product is more than something you buy. It has its own identity and story and local connection that you buy into. And people are really into it. If you haven't experienced this firsthand, here's a clip from the TV show Portlandia to really show you what we're talking about. Hi, hello. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, The chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this this is local? Yes, absolutely. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board, organic. The hazelnuts, these are local? Uh, How big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. In all seriousness, though, consumers really are demanding more choices and better quality products. Small businesses have popped up all over the place, giving people more variety than ever before. And you might have been faced with a choice of Bud or Miller, but now there's a million beers in the cooler that you can pick from. And where you might have only had the options of Edie's or Briars, and you were really bored in the ice cream aisle, now you can buy all kinds of different flavors from these tiny mom-and-pop companies in Whole Foods. Consumers are looking for the next cool, artisanal thing. And that's a challenge for bigger companies. They have to figure out how to get in on the craft game. On the flip side, the small companies have to figure out how to grow and keep their cool. But can they do that? I mean, is this just the beginning, or have we hit peak craft? To answer those questions, we first need to get inside the world of craft. We turn to a bit of an unexpected source. I bet you remember the hit single, Mbop. Of course, soundtrack to my life in the 90s. Well, soon after Isaac Taylor and Zach Hansen came out with that hit, they left their major record label to take a more independent route. They started their own label, created their own recording studio, made their own beer aptly named Mhops, and now they even have a festival called Hop Jam. Enough talking. Let's bring on Hansen. So I'd love to just start off by um, just asking you to tell us a little bit about your journey from music to beer and how it's going. How'd you get here? Hey, this is Taylor. The thing about it is the spirit of how we got here, you know, the, the essence of it really comes back to, you know, are you determined? Do you believe in what you do? Are you willing to take risks? 
we don't see a you know, much of a gap between, wow, let's make an amazing beer and let's uh, launch a festival and let's write songs for other people or let's tour, let's start a label. They, they, It's very much a part of that same desire to really just build things you're proud of and make a connection with people through those things. How is the idea of independence, how has that kind of guided you and how do you think that impacts what you're doing with music and beer? This is Isaac. Um, yeah, I mean, there are there are definitely challenges to being independent, but the, but the truth but the truth of it always is, from the very very beginning, that's where everyone starts. Nobody, uh, or at least very few people in the world, <laughs> start with some you know big bank loan in their back pocket that says, "All right, you got a bunch of money now, go do something with it, kid." You know, you have to earn your way, you have to earn your keep, and that's ultimately what independence really is about. At its essence, is to say, "I am my own best asset." And I have to do the most with it that I possibly can. And I have to hold true to my own uh, ideals and my own vision. Is that how you guys got into beer then? I mean, you could have done anything. Most bands just sell T-shirts. What drew you to beer and, and specifically craft, not just you know licensing your name to a, a bigger company? The, the difference, I think, for us in deciding to start beer in the way we've done it is really it's the same difference you see in the way we've run our music business, which is we actually understand what makes our music business work for us. Um, we focused on super serving our core fans, uh, really being creative and, and thinking about not just hits, but you know wh what's going to keep people invested in us. Let's do really special events. Let's do things that make the community bigger than us. Yeah. And so when it came to beer, like, like here's a, you know, hey, something that we're really interested in, something that we think could be great. We're, we're, we applied the same thoughts to that industry and it's authentic. The idea of sort of slapping our name on something and selling it to the highest bidder in and of itself is kind of against the ethos that we've built. Um, and so when you see our, you know, our beer label, you see our, you know, go to handsomebrothersbeer.com, you see Tulsa USA, Handsome Brothers Beer Company. And it it's saying this is from somewhere, from someone. And, and I think... Honestly, if the music business could take some cues from what's happening in craft beer, we would have a much stronger, healthier, more successful future for music. Do you think that craft, the word can extend beyond just like independent brewers who make a certain amount of beer, that kind of thing? Is it more about the quality? And do you think that it's changing? I mean, do you think that it's kind of as more people want craft beer, it's kind of the rising tide that lifts all ships? Like, is big beer getting better, too? So this is Zach. I haven't looked it up, but I'm pretty sure the Urban Dictionary says craft beer means uh, beards. <laughs> <laughs> We're never going back to the fact that there's going to be only several brands available on draft at most bars. Now, will there be a lot of breweries that will fail? Absolutely. Will there be a lot of the bubble will pop. But even when the bubble pops, it will not be the same as it once was. And I I think what it is is it's a coming of age. If big isn't necessarily bad and it's about identity, what's sort of your goal with with your beer and with your music? What does success look like for you? We want to we want to be known for quality. And we would like, you know, we, we see a future where we'd like for our, you know, our beer to be one of the crafts that's a go-to in, in most 
you know, different communities, but we know that it'll always be, um, our, our home base is, is here, you know, in, in the Midwest. And ultimately it's a great thing to be having people excited about making things and sharing it. It's a really, really good theme to be reaching for. Success can be a great gift, especially when you have a vision for what you'd like to see happen. When the goal is not only success, but success becomes the tool that allows you to make more of that thing you enjoy doing that, you know, as a beer brand, yeah, I mean, we want to be as many places as we can be because there are beer drinkers all over the world. And so it's it's not really about being the biggest brand as much as it is about being available to as many people. Talking about how these worlds come together and craft as a culture, if you take one look at the camaraderie and the connection between people that are really designed to almost sort of self-identify and say, this is where I'm from, this is who I am, and that we're going to see more of. We're really excited that we get to be a part of it and also in some ways influence where it's going by by trying to continue to connect with other people that share the desire to see the culture of craft. And craft is clearly a cultural movement, right? But it's also how they've been doing business for the last 20 years. The Hanson Brothers Beer Company is an extension of their independent lifestyle. Though they're really veterans of the independent music world, as brewers, the Hanson Brothers are pretty new to the game. What happens down the road when a craft business continues to grow? Can you get big and stay crafty? That's exactly what Ample Hills is trying to do. They're a Brooklyn-based ice cream company, and in 2011, Brian Smith and his wife Jackie opened up their first Ample Hills store. They were afraid nobody would show up, and then four days later, boom, they're out of ice cream. They actually had to close. Now they're so successful, they've taken on $4 million in investment money so that they can open a factory in Brooklyn and open more stores. They're even opening a store in Disney World. So how do you maintain that craft authenticity? We sat down with Brian to talk a little bit more about craft's growing pains. We were almost more interested in the idea of creating a neighborhood shop, a, a, a gathering place, a place where everyone knows your name almost more than the ice cream itself. So we didn't have these sort of grand dreams of an ice cream empire or uh, an ice cream business. We were sort of, we were creating a, a, a neighborhood spot that we wanted to pass the time in, that we wanted to share with our kids uh, and have be a, a bedrock of the community. I didn't know anything about making ice cream. I didn't have a, a business background, and I certainly had no right to sort of open up this shop in, in this neighborhood. You didn't have dreams of an ice cream empire or even becoming a big company, but now you're expanding. How do you keep the quality while expanding? And the community that's so important to you guys. Right. Well, those are the things that are really keep us up at night because it's the, um, it's the hardest thing to do uh, to grow this business while maintaining the authenticity uh, of the experience that people had coming into the first shop. And, and so we see our 
primary business in building out brick and mortar scoop shops. So there are a lot of people in the ice cream world. If you go to Whole Foods or any grocery store, you'll see 20 different brands of pints on the grocery store shelves. And we like to be there too, and we certainly intend to play in that field. Mm -hmm. But where the soul of Ample Hills is, is in brick and mortar shops. And that's uh, if, if, you know, 10, 15 years from now, there's 300 shops uh, around the country, we don't want those to be cookie cutter versions of each other like so many other chain. Uh, we want each one to feel of a place. And so one of the ways that we're looking at doing that is that each shop has its own signature flavor mm -hmm. that gets created and um churned on site in front of the public. So in microcosm, you get the narrative of how we make the ice cream back in a sort of a central place. And it, it gives uh, a sense of the authentic to that place. That's my Ample Hills in Kansas or Ohio or Iowa. And it has this flavor that only I can get at that place. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And it sounds like um, you do have really big goals then. I mean, I, I guess I'm curious. What well, is... I'm just, well, I'm just yeah, making a joke about just, the 300. Sure. But, but, you know, I guess I'm curious, what does success look like to you guys mm. now? I mean, your dreams have probably changed a lot now that yeah. you've, you've experienced so much success. I'm curious, because so, some people who, who love small batch and local stuff, mm. like they feel like Ben and Jerry's, well, they're a sellout because mm. they're owned by Unilever. But, yeah. but you know, also that's a successful business. <laughs> ben and Jerry is. are very successful. Uh, there's an inherent um, publicity challenge in growth, that people will say, oh, Shake Shack isn't what it once was because right. now there's 70 of them instead of two of them. Well, clearly it's not as special because you can get it in more places. But if they don't, if you don't change the central product, if you don't change the way you make the product, I don't have personally a problem with the idea of simply um, of growing if if you don't change the product. But yeah. that's the big challenge because there's a lot of demands on businesses as they grow and scale to change the product. And you've got backers who are in the sort of local food scene. Do they want to see you guys grow more aggressively? Or I mean, I wonder if there's any tension there. Maybe I'm totally mm. wrong. Is there tension between, you know, we want to see you guys grow quickly and, mm. and maybe the community of, of other business people who are like, no, stay true to who you are, yeah. you know, don't sell out. I mean, I, I I take issue with the idea of this sort of false dichotomy of oh, okay. sell out. And right. No, I, right. I think I it's important to distinguish because it's a very typical way of thinking of things like, oh, you get big, you've sold out. And I, I personally think, uh, while I haven't seen a lot of businesses do this successfully, I think you can get big and stay true to who you were. And, and as long as you're continuing to make an authentic product and to uh, have the same authentic experience that you had before, I don't see why size alone negates the value of what you're doing. So I think that... Um, there's absolutely an inherent tension at work there mm -hmm. because you're playing against a lot of people's perception, which is you grow, you sell out, and you get bigger. It's not as good. We made the decision by taking on investors that we were going to have to grow in, yeah. a, in a way that was not as organic as opening one shop, 
waiting around a couple of years and opening another shop, waiting around another couple of years and opening another shop. Because when you take on investors, you, you're doing it with a reason and a purpose, which is to um, take in money and return that money to them. But it doesn't mean that we have to do it in such a way that dilutes what we do. much for coming in and doing this. Thank um, you. This has so been much. really fun. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We talked to Hanson. We talked to Ample Hills. I think we have a better sense of the business side of this, but what do consumers think? Yeah, I really wonder how much of this customers really notice. I mean, I like ice cream and beer a lot, uh, but I'm not sure how much I really notice who makes it. To find out, we gathered some of Bloomberg's finest, our friends Bob, Matt, Craig, and Alex, and conducted a blind taste test to see if four of our peers could really distinguish craft from generic. In order, you'll hear them test three kinds of cookie dough ice cream, the first from Ben & Jerry's, the second from Ample Hills, and the third a generic from Walgreens. So okay. you cover marijuana and beer and we get ice cream? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So go ahead and try your first ice cream. Mm -hmm. Just yeah. tell by the way it looks, it's kind of cheap. The cookie dough is good. It feels like it's relatively recently made, or I don't know. I think there might be some crack in mine. <laughs> I can't stop eating it. <laughs> I'm not impressed by the, the chocolate chips in here. They seem pretty low cost. <laughs> that felt like a I think I know store brand. Yeah, you guys think you know. Okay, are we ready for ice cream number two? Mm-hmm. This is the this is oh the, uh, this this different flavor. this this is something it's different. It's like robin egg speckled. This definitely is a step up from the first one. I also like that the chocolate is flaked in the ice cream instead of being little chocolate nubs like the last one. Yeah, this does seem higher quality, just the texture and consistency. It's like shrapnel in this one. <laughs> chocolate dust. It is. Yeah. It's like dust. It's yeah. like chocolate it's like dust. Like, yeah. The first one seemed almost gratuitously sweet, mm -hmm. like it was sweet. my teeth. Yeah, too sweet for no reason. This one's a little more reasonable. All right, so here's ice cream number three. This is the first, it looks like the first one. It looks just like the first one. <laughs> Except the cookie dough chunks are really small. Less sweet, I feel like, than the first one. Yeah, more um, more buttery. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this might be the generic. You think? I think it's the one in between. In between? I think you gave it to us um, in order from uh, the generic to the middle to the to the. Uh, I think that this. You last think this one is the high end? You think I think is this is the artisanal. Yeah. While they chewed over their decisions, we pulled our teammate Craig Giamona aside to dig deeper into what the average shopper really knows about craft. Craig covers the big food companies like General Mills and Kellogg. What do consumers think? You know, it's a good question. I, I do think with these terms, a lot of it is marketing. You know, there's all natural, which is a famously a term that really has no meaning. It's not defined by the government. It's just something that you slap on products because that's what people want. There's been a movement towards less processed food. You know, natural is good. So, But in that case, that means absolutely nothing to call something all natural. Then you have organic that's defined by the government. That means that the crop was raised in a certain way or the animal was raised in a certain way. So there's a meaning there, but you know, then you get into the GMO conversation. That's another complicated thing. So it's very muddy as far as what people actually understand about these terms, but no question that their power in marketing is sort of undeniable. 
Do people know who owns what company? I mean, do they do they do their homework to look into is this thing really small, local? Right. I, I think a certain customer does that. You know, mm-hmm. there's a Whole Foods shopper that is very aware of where their products come from. You know, a great example is a company called Annie's. Obviously, Annie's Mac and Cheese. They were an early organic brand that grew up um, in the '90s. Was founded out in Berkeley and sort of grew up with the Whole Foods crowd, and then crossed over into the mainstream. You know, then of course bought by General Mills for more than eight hundred million, eight hundred million dollars back in twenty fourteen. Supposedly, you know, there was a flood of Facebook posts when Annie's got bought by people saying, "Oh God, you're going to ruin Annie's. Here comes big food. I love this little brand. What are they going to do?" You know, so in that case where there's a loyal following, I think people do know. If you walked out onto the street and asked people who makes Cheerios, how many of them know that it's General Mills? You know, not that many. To take that Annie's example through, what happened? I mean, people, you know, were upset to begin with, but have people complained since about has the quality decreased? Have people stopped buying it? What's going on since then? No, they haven't stopped buying it. And, you know, that one is being held up now an exam- as an example of sort of big food, learning the lessons of the past and actually figuring out how to run one of those brands. So the, the famous example, the bad example is Kashi. You know, Kashi was, like an Annie's, a cereal brand, beloved from California, gets bought by Kellogg. They instantly move everyone to Michigan. And it's it's like a term that people throw out there, getting kashied, you know, using it as a verb <laughs> to basically mean big food ruining a beloved brand. So here comes General Mills now to buy Annie's. They know about this example. So they say, we're leaving you out in Berkeley. We're not bringing you to Minneapolis, to General Mills headquarters. General Mills basically using Annie's to run their natural and organic business. And there haven't been many complaints. You know, so maybe another example is Ben and Jerry's, you know, that got bought by Unilever. They had some tension in the beginning, but it seems like now they've gotten to a good place where Unilever leaves them alone. It seems like big food has sort of learned its lesson. And the Annie's example is one of a, a success story at this point. So it sounds like there are two ways that big companies are getting in on this. One being we just buy the small company because right. we can't do it ourselves. And the other being marketing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think the buying one is is the prominent one. I think you know these big companies are basically saying, we're going to set aside money to be venture capitalists, to go out there, look for the hot emerging brand, and we want to buy in earlier and earlier because we want to take advantage of the growth. Big food has realized, I think, that Entrepreneurs can do it better than they can, so let's just buy these guys or invest early. You know that that's the way to take advantage of the growth is to let the entrepreneurs do what they do best, and we'll just invest very early on. Is quality better because we've got these smaller companies challenging the big guys and 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 forcing them to use better ingredients, use fresher stuff? I mean, are you seeing that at all? I think so. I think that's right. I mean, high fructose corn syrup is you know there was a major backlash against that, so that's come out of a lot of products. I mean, again, you could argue. So is it's not like real sugar is good for us. You know, you're still eating real sugar, but General Mills now makes these most of their cereals without artificial colors and flavors. That's a direct result of sort of, you know, I think of social media, consumers having a constant way to sort of express their displeasure and lobby for things. So, yeah, I do I think that big food no question got caught flat-footed by this changing consumer tastes and has had to adjust. And yeah, I think you could argue sort of objectively that food, that the quality has improved, that that's what the consumers demand. Consumers are just way more aware of these issues, again, I think because of social media and everything's at their fingertips. So the information is there, and and obviously the avenue to complain is also there. So I I do think it's gotten better and uh, forced them to sort of raise their quality. Number two one just reeks of craft or trying really hard to make it seem different, and right? I think so, too, the way it looks. And the and other it... ones are sort of similar, so they feel like the generic, yes. nicely produced, 
you know, either national brand or generic, or like private label or whatever. You guys are probably right, but I'm going to go for number three as being the artisanal because the ice cream had much more of a butterfat content. It, it, right? That's I mean, true. the first one just more was custardy. like, here's this white cold stuff. You know, but the third one was like, oh, we're going to put more butterfat in it and charge you more and say it's artisanal. Okay, so so Craig and Matt both think the artisanal one was the second one. Yes, yes, yes. And I think I'm throwing in for that as well. Okay, and Bob, you think I'm going to hold out and say the artisanal one was the third one. Okay, all right, everyone. The first ice cream that we gave you was actually the Ben and Jerry's, which was our middle ground ice cream. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, that's, yeah. Wow. yeah. But you all agreed that that was a generic. Right. The curse pri- you, Ben, the, and the curse you, Jerry. Go, the private the label Jerry's one is, is that you guys kind of liked was the uh, the generic uh, brand you get at Dwayne Reed. <laughs> Delight. Yeah. <laughs> that was number three. That was number three, which okay. means our artisanal brand was the second. Yeah, so we had yes. that far. We got that. Yes. Right? Hey, Unless no, you're Bob. Bob. Except for Bob. <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. learned. From talking to Hanson, Ample Hills, and Craig, it seems like the word craft is at best confusing and at worst meaningless. And from our esteemed taste testers, it's clear that just because something is considered craft doesn't mean everyone's going to prefer it over big brands. Right. I mean, consumers do seem to recognize the extra effort companies put into making these more artisanal products. I mean, almost all of our taste testers accurately guessed which ice cream was Ample Hills, with the notable exception of Bob. For the record, I'm all about the Amble Hill shrapnel ice cream versus the smooth vanilla of the Middle Ground Ben & Jerry's or the Walgreens. I don't know about that. I mean, what people seem to want with Kraft is a product that's authentic, something that has an identity, they're connected to a local community, they have a story behind it. That's pushing big businesses to do better, too. Absolutely. Companies are learning that they actually have to um, listen to what their customers want. There's more competition than ever now with these small specialty producers spreading the craft gospel. With so much more choice, big companies are improving their existing products. Like General Mills and Kellogg are moving certain ingredients from their cereals. Right, or they're literally buying into the craft movement and absorbing these smaller competitors. Also, whether you're at an Ample Hills store or at one of Hanson's concerts, I think people like to support small businesses because it really feels like you're helping the people behind the brand. Maybe after years of big food and big drink domination, people are flocking to smaller, more local, and more personal brands. Any way you spin it, it seems like the popularity and the rise of the craft movement means that ultimately the consumer is the one who wins. Cheers to that. And with that, we've come to the end of this episode of Material World. Thanks so much for listening. For more Material World, check out Bloomberg.com or follow us on Twitter at LCRUP and at Jenny M. Kaplan. You can also follow the Hanson Brothers at Hanson Music and Ample Hills at Ample Hills on Instagram and Twitter. Be careful, though. Ample Hills picks are bound to make you hungry. We'll be back in two weeks. Why would you give kids artisanal ice yeah. cream? You They're happy them. with anything sweet. Give me a break. Yeah, you chip off the uh, <laughs> oh the God. ice that's that's growing on your freezer and put it <laughs> right. in a cup, and that's good enough.